0: Welcome to New Books in Journalism, where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication. I'm David Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Our guest is Joseph Uzinski, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. His book, The People's News, looks at the political economy of media and starts with the premise that news is not a type of media, but rather a commodity that is bought and sold on the market. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the people's news, just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I am an assistant professor at the University of Miami. I am in the political science department, and I've been here since
0: uh, 2007. Now, you, this, this book about the political economy of news, uh, before we get too far into it, you approached it somewhat uniquely in that you looked at um, at news and media media. Uh, as a commodity that's it is bought, it is bought and sold, is it not news? News is not media, but rather news as a commodity. Please you know, sort of elaborate what you mean by that. I think
1: when people watch the news, they think of it as you know the stories that journalists tell. They think of those as a representation of you know what's happening in the world, and they don't necessarily think of the choices that go into um, constructing the news. So you know whether it's newspapers or internet news or the broadcast news somebody has to choose from essentially an infinite number of events that could be reported the tiny number of events that actually will be reported so what i'm concerned with in the book is what are what are those forces that drive journalists and producers to make those choices and what i argue in the book is that it's Economics—that—that—that uh, that, that is the predominant force that drives um, these choices to be made, whether the producers or journalists know it or not. So, what that means is that the audience gets what it wants. Is that you have in a market economy, which is which is what the media operates in, is that you have people who want something who will pay for it either by purchasing a subscription or, or paying for it with their time and watching commercials, um, the, they'll have demands, so things that they want to see. And if they don't get what they want, they're going to get it somewhere else. So if you're a news producer, you have to provide those things that are going to draw audiences in so that you can either sell those subscriptions or sell the advertising space to advertisers. So what this winds up meaning is that the audience is going to go um, to producers that will give it what it wants. So you wind up with these feedback loops. So rather than the news being this powerful entity that can control and influence um, citizens by telling them what to think and what to think about, instead what I argue is that it's the news consumer that's telling news producers – what to report and what to write about and how to report it.
0: And so what were you, looking? For? Now, some, some people say that you know, all research is at some level autobiographical. Um, there must have been something that inspired it. Was it was something that you were noticing in the news that you were consuming or what is it about this topic that initially piqued your interest?
1: Well, one thing I, mean, I grew up in New Hampshire, so I noticed that the news coverage there was slightly different than what we got from news coverage um, in in the more national news sources. So I grew up reading the Union Leader, which was very much tailored to the live for your die state, and the news that came out of that newspaper was very different than what we got on the broadcast news. Different emphasis, different way of reporting. The the candidates that the newspaper um, endorsed were typically Republican candidates, but if you look at endorsements made at other major newspapers, they were typically Democratic candidates. And my question is why is that? You know, why, you know, what does the union leader know that every other um, newspaper um, or news source doesn't know? And it wasn't that they knew anything different, it's just that they were appealing to a different audience. you know the New Hampshire people were different than the people in Massachusetts, uh, most certainly. Um, so, you know what that made me realize um, early on was that, you know, they were appealing to the audience, and this became even even bigger when cable news hit in the late, you know, really came to fruition in the late '90s, and that, and this was really shown by by the emergence of Fox News. And if you think about why Fox News is what it is, they're not a propaganda machine. They're not out there to influence people. They're out there to serve what was, before they arrived, an underserved market. So you know, if you ask yourself why is Fox News why does Fox News have a conservative bent? Well, it's not because they want to trick people into being conservative. It's because they want to give conservative people something they can't could not get anywhere else, particularly from MSNBC or CNN um, in the late nineties.
0: And so, there's a quote at the beginning of your first chapter from Ted Koppel. Uh, it says in in news, however, it is the journalists who should be telling their viewers what is important, not the other way around and it 's interesting because your theme or, or thesis for this book is the opposite it is that the- consu- it is the consumers that drive this. it is not the journalists who drive the content
1: well that 's right there's a there 's a normative conception of journalism, and then there is the empirics i mean do the normative conceptions hold or not? And I say that the normative ideal is fine. I think that journalists should be able to um, identify the stories that are important and report those stories free of market demands. I don't know how that would happen or in what fairy tale land you know um, that would take place, but I do like that ideal and I think that's what journalists should do as much as they can. but there's also an empirical question, and that is what, in fact, does drive news content. And those are two very different questions. So we can say what should happen, and then we could say what is happening. And what the book argues is that, is that, is that the audience is driving um, these decisions um, rather than um, what I would say is the normative ideal, and that would be the journalist choosing independent of market demands.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's a realistic angle from which you're coming from, in that, and and you've even put in the book that, um, you know, ideally, sure, you know, the journalists would be able to identify the news and the people would consume the news in the way the journalists intended, but that doesn't happen. And one reason it doesn't happen, as you note in the book, is because we do live in a capitalistic society, where um, you know, this pure, um, moralistic agenda-driven journalistic stance isn't going to work because. You still need to make some money. You still need to stay in business.
1: Yeah, and, and, and maybe the book is a little bit depressing in that sense. We start out with this very nice idea from Ted Koppel, and then the book ends, um, you know, the final chapter begins with a quote from Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. So we move from this idea of, of, of a journalism that's out there to do what we all think it should do for the most part, and then we end with this idea that, no, they don't really do that. Um, even those who don't admit to it. I mean, no journalist is going to say, "Well, you know, I'm out here to you know make as much money as I can and write the stories that are, that are going to pull in the maximum number of readers or or get me the most number of clicks or internet comments." No one's going to say that. Instead, they're going to say, "I'm doing the most important stories," you know. But what does "most important" mean? So once we define that, once we can, you know, decide what does most important mean to journalists, what we find is that it really means drawing in the most number of people. And those stories that we think um, are really important aren't necessarily the same stories that pull in a lot of people. So think about the junk that we see reported, you know, particularly on cable news. Mm -hmm. I mean, O'Reilly prides himself on saying, well, I do news analysis and I'm going to do the most important stories. But half of the stories are just silly stuff. You know, um, there's a half-naked girl doing a hamburger commercial. Oh, my God, what do you think about this? Um, it, I mean, O'Reilly isn't alone on this. If you watch cable news for any number of hours, I mean, some of the stories are going to be about, you know, important policy issues. But but the rest of it's going to be filler material, having to do with dogs Cats, an escaped animal, um, some sort of um, naked thing that might be going on somewhere. Um, you know, so there's always this drive to hit, to hit the stories that, that people demand. And the interesting thing with demands is that people don't always know what they want to see. I mean, demands are often um, subconscious. So no one's going to turn on the news and say, hey, I want to see, you know partially naked people, or, you know, things blow up, or fires burn down buildings, or violent confrontations. People don't say that. But people want to see those things, whether they admit it or not. So the, so those are the kind of stories that tend to um, overtake the news agenda. So that's why, you know, when I start measuring what kind of stories do we see in the news, um, the stories that most people you know, that a lot of us think are important and the need of more coverage really don't get any coverage at all. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is somewhat bad. I don't know how you get away from it. Um, the best I would suggest is that, you know, perhaps some of the news, um, organizations could move at the margins to kind of bring in more meaningful policy oriented stories. Um, but, you know, as it stands now, we get a lot of, we get a lot of filling material.
0: (laughs) There, there are a lot of journalists, um, either professional journalists or journalism researchers who come at this very idealistically, but what journalism should be, and that should, the word should is very much a buzzword. Um, You're looking at it from the, from the perspective of a political scientist, and on top of that, you're doing so in very much uh, uh, quantitative terms. What advantage do you think that gives you as a researcher um, to maybe, um, be operating somewhat outside of the field of of journalism and communication?
1: Um, well, it gives me the advantage of having empirics on my side. I mean, I don't take issue with people who have normative ideals. I mean, I share those. I think that's fine. Um, it's just that if we want to understand what the media is, then we need to get into the world of empirics and start measuring it, and, and, and the book attempts to do that. I mean, I measure... You know tens of thousands of of stories from the broadcast news over the over the course of i think four decades, and then I get into you know more qualitatively looking at some of the content um, that we see in uh, in the newer media outlets like the cable news to demonstrate my points so I don't think that it's necessarily that we have to make a choice between normative conceptions and empirical findings I think that that if People were to take my empirics at face value, they would probably say, "Okay, um, if we have these normative ideas about what journalism should be, and we're not meeting them, how can we go about meeting them, and what should be done?" Because I, I, think if we're if if you were on the one hand to say I have this normative ideal of journalism, and you were to blindly say journalists actually follow this without any evidence to support that, then you're living in you know a fairy tale land. So. I think it's very fair uh, for me or anyone else and others have done this before. It's not a new idea to try and measure you know what news content really is. I think that you know the findings that the, um, that the book shows I mean can very much be used by normative research and perhaps build an agenda to improve journalism over time. and that's maybe one thing that I hope will come out of it.
0: And how did you define news? You even asked in the question one of the chapters. I forget where you the heading is. What is news? How did you, for the sake of our readers, tell them or listeners, uh, tell them how you went about um, defining what news is or setting those parameters?
1: Well, empirically, I mean, for, I, I mean, most of the data in the book draws on the broadcast news, and then I mm-hmm. and, and then I draw on um, news from. Uh, from cable news sources and then and, and then from a little bit from newspapers too, but for me, news is anything that the producer says is news so I think this is an important point because I think a lot of people will say, you know particularly when it comes to the cable news stations where they've become you know what's termed softer news, I think it's a cop out to say, well, you know that outlet is a soft news outlet, so we can't hold them to the same standards." I don't buy that because, you know, outlets like MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News, I mean, they build themselves as news, cable news channels. So I don't think they can have it both ways and say, well, you know, we're, we're here to be somewhat entertaining and we're here to do analysis so that alleviates us of the demands of, you know, normative journalism. I, I don't believe in that. I think if you're going to bill yourself as, as some sort of news outlet, then, then then you should be critiqued as a news outlet.
0: There's a, and, and uh, listeners, please stick with me on this because I'm talking about a chart in the book. Um, but uh, it's on page 64, um, there's, there's a table there about the comparison of MIP data, MIP meaning uh, Gallup's most important problem, um, to broadcast news data. And there appears to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I, if I read this wrong, this, this discrepancy in this issue of macroeconomics. Um, are you following with where I'm going with this?
1: Actually, I'm going to tell you why I can't. I only received you received the copy of the book before I did. I oh got, no! I got one copy of the book, and I had to send it up t- to my superiors because I'm up for tenure right now, so I
0: don't have the book in front of me. Well, so. it looks great, Joe. <laughs> <It> looks fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what? So what were some of your findings? Um, you, you looked a lot at this data of of uh, starting with using as you started with this Gallup's MIP, their most important problem, which oh. which is what a, where a lot of research sometimes begins, or even what a lot of professional. Um, producers within broadcast news or cable news will use. What is um, what, what are some of the advantages of this MIP and some of the uh, the problems that go with it as a research tool as well?
1: You know, one thing with the with the most important problem question. I mean, it's good that it's been asked for decades, and we can compare what the public's priorities are over time. Um, But what we find is that the people always say economics. (laughs) It's always the number one thing. I mean, it will dip when the economy is really good, but people always care about economics. Um, So, I mean, that tells us about people. There's also some problems with the question, too, for my purposes. I mean, if you ask people, what's the most important problem facing the country, they're never going to say, oh, something going on in the Middle East, because that's not in this country. So if you were to compare... You know, um, results from any from any time the MIP question is asked to what the news agenda is, you're going to find a big discrepancy between between what's being reported, because one of the big issues is always foreign affairs. But people never say, oh, my God, one of the big problems facing us is foreign affairs. It's very rare that they will say that. Sometimes they will, like if we're involved in a war or there's something really big going on. But if you ask people, you know, what's the most important problem facing the country? It's going to be something domestic. So, um, you know, so so for that reason, it's not the best question, but it's the only question that we can really compare over time um, as a good measure of, of uh, public interest and public de- demand for news,
0: sure. Um, and, and and turning back toward the uh, toward the cable channels, um, this is one thing that was I found really just especially interesting about the book was how and you had to in a sense set apart the cable channels from the broadcasters. So you know Ted Koppel, like I said at the beginning, you know he was from you know, he's ABC. And for a while, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, the big three. Along come CNN and Fox and MSNBC. And you already addressed the whole thing about Fox was serving the underserved conservative market. And MSNBC was, con- was addressing the underserved liberal market. And as we saw from ratings, ratings being just one measure, from the 08 and, again, the 2012 election cycles, that uh, CNN, would try to come at things from a more down-the-middle market, they were ones that were struggling the most. You know, they they might have been first, having been around for thirty plus years now, but it was the people on the margins, MSNBC and Fox, that were really drawing the ratings. When you started studying uh, the cable side of this, did you expect um, what you found in cable to be as vastly different as it is from traditional broadcast?
1: I mean, it's different and not different. It's different in the sense that they're offering a slightly different product so they can get away with, ideolo- with, with, with the ideological segmentation that they have. Um, but I don't think that the broadcasts, you know, the ABC, NBC, and CBS are, are, are less affected by market demands. Um, they're affected by it in a, you know, in a different way. They care what their ratings are. And they're going to adjust their their programming to um, make sure they have the best ratings that they can. So so the broadcasters are not there to do a public service and lose as much money as they can. They're there to you know, make as much money as they can, right? And, and, and we've seen this in their behavior. I mean, they've, um, you know, they go through anchor, they change anchors. They care about, you know, how many people, um, the different anchors get to watch the show. They, they've changed formats slightly over the years, Um So the broadcasters are not immune to it. In terms of the cable news networks, I mean, I watched this unfold um, over the years. I mean, if you watched MSNBC, I mean, they didn't know who they were for a long time. And and during the Bush administration, they went through a lot of growing pains because the hosts that they featured, I mean, they had the libertarian Tucker Carlson, who was matched on the same show with Rachel Maddow it didn't really make much sense they had Joe Scarborough trying to compete for the O'Reilly market um, I think they had Al Sharpton do a show they had Phil Donahue do a show uh, they had Alan Keyes do a show so ideologically they were all over the place they didn't know who they were and they didn't know what they were doing and it wasn't until the the Iraq war till opinion on the Iraq war really um, turned against the Bush administration that they were able to kind of find their niche and some of that was driven by Keith Oberman mm-hmm. and is that with Oberman's success and his critique of the Iraq war um, the MSNBC was able to say hey you know we're going to you know go full on to the left and we're going to be the, the left wing um, uh, critique of, of, of Fox News so they were able to, 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 to get an identity and develop who they were and um, because of that, they were able to overtake CNN in terms of ratings. Um, but now CNN has, has been able to, I, I think, come out in front of, of MSNBC. And there are probably a few reasons for that. Um, for whatever reason, you know, the far left does not do well in talk radio, and it doesn't seem to do very well in um, cable TV either. Is that I, I I think that the country is a little more center right than perhaps the um, you know the people in the news industry um, will admit, and I think the MSNBC probably went too far to the left.
0: Uh, I, I also think it helps when there is an enemy to focus on, and when when the left you know had Bush in office, there was that focal point, and sure. uh, and since then. You know, how can you be? You know, it doesn't really serve their their um, doesn't really serve business to be outraged at uh, a president who is on the side that their viewers are. Sure,
1: I mean that's part of it, but Fox News was still doing incredibly well during the Bush years. That's true. So, um, I I think that there's something to be said for that, but I don't think it's as big as as an effect. You know, I I mean, if a Republican wins office in 2016. I don't think that MSNBC is going to rock it to the top of the rings. I think that Fox News is still going to be number one out of the three of them. So, um, so yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm going to turn a little bit toward, um, toward methodology just a bit. And uh, you, you note that uh, you, you, you combine these studies of media effects and media content. Um, which is a really a smart way of going about it. Um, if you could just briefly describe what each of those are, as you understand them, both effects and also media content, and then go into how you combine them in terms of your research.
1: So, media effects research has been going on for about, I think, seventy or eighty years now. Um, some of the big studies, um, you know, from a long time ago that I could say would be Paul Lazarsfeld's work. Um, so. So World War One and World War Two happened, and one of the questions that social scientists face is, "Hey, how come, um, you know, people in these totalitarian states like Germany and Italy and Japan um, did really bad things and went along with regimes that you know they knew were doing pretty awful stuff? What would make otherwise good people do this?" And one of the one of the reasons that uh, social scientists posited was that you know propaganda. You know, so Nazi propaganda led people to, you know, um, support the regime. Um, so the idea was that, you know, there's this really powerful news effect out there that if you put messages out there to people that, you know, people were like lemmings, they would immediately absorb those messages and do what the messages told them. So if you, if you watched a short film that said Nazis are great and Hitler's awesome, um, then people are going to believe that Nazis are great and Hitler's awesome. So after the war's end, social scientists start saying, okay, well, let's put this this to the test and see how big of an effect this really is. And What they found was, you know, people have opinions and they don't change that much. And so studies that were going on in the United States during the elections in the 1930s, 40s and 50s show that there was a lot of attitude stability. That no matter what they were exposed to in the news, people tended to keep the same attitudes. So that, that brought social scientists to reject what was the hypodermic needle hypothesis. You know, the idea that news, you know, was able to inject people with messages and change their minds right away and instead um, brought about the adoption of the minimal effects hypothesis, which is the idea that, you know, news may have an effect, but it's going to be very minimal. And there were two reasons for that, and that one is that, Um, People have psychological filters so that if you give someone a message they don't agree with, they just filter it out. They don't pay attention to it or they they, they will have these barriers that the message just just won't get through them. And studies over and over again show this. So if you tell someone who's in favor of, of gun rights that there are strong studies that show that we should limit guns in some way, they're going to say those studies are fake or they're bad evidence or, or whatever. And if you flip it on its head, you know, people who are proponents of gun, um, uh, of limitation of gun rights, and you give them studies that say, hey, guns are, are good and we shouldn't limit them, they're going to call into question those studies. You know, so people believe what they want to believe and predispositions are incredibly strong so information really doesn't have that much of an independent effect um, instead it's it's going to um, reinforce what people already believe and if it, it says something people don't already believe people will just reject it so that's the first part of it. and then the second part is that people are going to choose what they want to listen to and, or, or watch or read and we see that in the cable news market now so what do, what do conservatives watch? They're not putting on Rachel Maddow. They're going to put on Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity. So um, people are going to get exposed to what they want to hear, and people are going to filter out anything um, that sneaks its way in. So for that reason, you know, we want, you know the study of, 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 of media effects went through about 50 years where they said, you know, there are effects, but they're very minimal. Now, the, now there were a lot of studies that started coming out, particularly in the late 60s, that, ta- um, that focused on ideas of agenda setting. And that would be the idea of, hey, the media might not be able to tell people what to think, but at least it can get people to think about certain things. So imagine if the, if the broadcasters started talking about the economy over and over again, it's going to make people say, hey, the economy must be important, and I'm going to start thinking about that. But the one thing that was going on in many of these studies was that it wasn't really accounting for the forces that were driving those stories to be reported in the first place. So this is why I make the argument that, hey, you know, we have hundreds of studies that say the media does have an effect on what people think about, but they're not really accounting for the effect that what people think about was driving those, those um, stories to be reported in the first place. So, what I try to do in my study is to bring together the you know the idea of hey what 's driving the news um, producers to report certain stories and at the same time um, given the answer to that question, how much of an effect is there left for the news to have on on news consumers and what I argue is that. You know, because audience opinions have such an effect on what's reported in the first place, there isn't much room for the news to have a big effect on people in the second place.
0: So there are different ways of measuring. You, know, you talk about you know, numerous times how it's, it's almost bottom-up. It's, it's the consumers you know, using the news as a commodity, and then, and then the broadcasters know or at least think they know of which way to go with the news. Um, there's, a, there's a part of the book in which you talk about ratings uh, and scientific versus unscientific polls. Um, you, you know, for, for example, um, it's, uh, a, a story about the funding a new sewage plant doesn't move the needle at all, whereas Kim Kardashian marrying Kanye West, that's going to drive some sort of traffic. Um, t- try to compare polls, the unscientific polls, the scientific polls and ratings, and how those combine to help influence the people who produce um, the news, the broadcast news and the cable news, and, and how that helps drive them to understand um, what kind of news it is that they think that their consumers want.
1: Well, there are a lot of ways for um, news producers to know what people want. Um, I mean, the first and the most easiest one is that that news producers live in the country, you know, if it's domestic news. Um, they have a pretty good idea of what conditions are. They can they can go outside and see what things are going on, and they can report accordingly. Um, that's not perfect, but you know there is a nose for news that exists. Um, the other way is. is you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of polls taken. I mean, I, we can't even count the number of polls that are taken nowadays. I mean, if you go back 30 or 40 years, they were, they were done with much less frequency, but now it's overwhelming the number of polls that are taken. Now they're cheap to do, you, can, you know, there's auto-dialing, there's internet um, surveys that are done, and, and large news organizations have access to this information, so they know what people are thinking on particular issues. So those are, you know, those are the more formal ways of finding out. But but some of the less scientific ways are, for instance, um, you know, when, if you put a, a, a story on on the internet, you can see how many clicks it gets, and you can, and, and you can probably track where those um, clicks are coming from uh, geographically. You can um, you know how many comments people are putting on on an internet news story. Um, if you're a, a news if you're a cable or, or a news broadcaster you have some idea of what your ratings are you know they're not perfect but you can tell what what, what shows are getting the good ratings and what ones aren't and and since the book was finished uh, and I wish I was able to include this in the book if you turn on the the Fox what is supposedly their hard news program which is a special report with Brett air the segment at the end they allow people to um, use their computers and phones to rate pretty much every phrase that their commenters say and they can track it over Bing so that they can see, you know, if Charles is talking, they can see what the audience likes what he says and, 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 and what things he says the audience doesn't like as much. And, and they can do this by gender, too. They know what men, what comments men like, and they know what comments women like, and they know which commenters the men and women like. So they they have immediate feedback down to the topic and sentence and word level of what, of, of, of what people want to see. So the methods for doing this are sold as, you know, hey, come take part in the conversation and, you know, tell us what you like and, you, you know, so you're being a part of the news. But... What it really is, if you think about it from an economics perspective, is that you're walking into the used car dealership, opening up your wallet, and letting the salesman look at it to see what it is you're willing to spend. So you're, so what, what consumers are doing now is giving an incredible, incredible amount of market information to producers so they can act on it um, incredibly well and, and with pretty good precision.
0: There's, there's am there's a, I'm gonna get, we're starting to get toward the end here, but there's some things I want to touch on because the last chapter is just really um, important. Um, I, I love what you wrote. It's, it's in the very last paragraph when you write the media. We're gonna come to. We actually, I'm gonna have you answer your own question, which is the media have been targeted with a great deal of criticism over the years. Some of it is deserved. Some of it is not. But when we criticize the news, who are we really criticizing? I thought that was a, a brilliant question to ask at the end. And who are we criticizing?
1: ourselves. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the answer is that, is that, uh, I mean, po- I mean, think about public opinion and think about public knowledge. I mean, p- if you ask just basic questions about what do people know about politics and policy, what surveys show us over and over again is that people can't even name who many of our leaders are. Uh, people don't know what's going on in the world at even basic levels. And part of that's the news. Part of it is just that they don't want to watch the news. Um, If you ever watch the segment Jaywalking, um, and even Jimmy Kimmel's been doing this recently, um, and I'll, I'll mention one that Jimmy Kimmel did. He went out and asked people, you know, which do you prefer, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare? I mean, obviously those are the same thing. But when they ask people off the street, you know, which one do you prefer, they preferred one or the other. You know, and that just tells you how ignorant some people are of, of, of what's going on. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, people get the news they deserve. You know, if people aren't interested in policy, if people don't care that much, then they're going to get news that reflects that. Um, so, you know, if you put on the local news, and, and and this is a real experience I had. I had to take my car in to get it fixed, so I was stuck watching the noontime local broadcast news and there were seven stories in a row that had to do with with an animal there was a cat who got lost in West Palm Beach who made its way home to Coconut Grove there was a kangaroo who escaped from the cage and was running around town there was a, a snake who almost ate a baby. Um, there was a lost dog that somebody was looking for. And this was, the, this was the news, seven stories in a row. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this is why I don't watch the noontime news, because this is all they had to report. And I'm like, is there anything better? And if you go and watch other, uh, you know, other local news, and this bleeds into the, certainly into the cable news, uh, the national cable news networks, too. Oh, my God, there's a police chase. Oh my God, a building burnt down. Um, someone got held up at the convenience store. It's like, is this, the, these are the big stories that people need to hear about? Um, you know, it's done in different ways in different, uh, in different news outlets, but it's, it's the same thing. If they're trying to appeal to people's base, you know, desires for news, there's, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of sex, um, there's a lot of conflict. Um, and, it, and it perverts what otherwise could be a great way for people to learn about what's going on and even when when good stories are reported um, so for instance, if there's reporting of campaigns or whatnot it's done in a way that's somewhat perverse and i I point this out. In in the book, what is that? If there's a, ba- a debate between two candidates, how does how does the media treat it? It's not treated as you know two candidates talking about their differences and presenting different policy positions. It's a brutal knife fight. It's a bloody battle between titans. And it's it's no, it's no such thing. They do this to hype it up and get, you know, to appeal to people's desire to see conflict and violence. But there's no conflict. I mean, there's a conflict of ideas, but there's no physical conflict. There's no violence. You know, it's two people standing behind podiums, never touching each other, and just talking calmly. <laughs> but it's treated as if it was a prize fight. It's not. And I think in some way, you know, that sort of coverage, um, you know, perverts people's perceptions of politics and maybe turns a lot of people off.
0: So last question is, is what do we, so what's to be done? You know, the market rules, if if let's hypothetically say 95% of America loved red cars, then we would start seeing all the dealerships carrying red cars. Um, what what does the discerning, maybe more socially perceptive news consumer go when, um, for their news, say to, to cable television, um, What's where's to go when you know if if the if the company itself you know needs to sell advertising and needs to make the money but they don't have maybe the audience that say something like Fox or MSNBC has where do where does the the uh, the sort of the uh, high end consumer of news go for the kind of news that they want if that's not what the majority of the market wants?
1: Well. I mean, the, the the bigger solution is to have market demands change, and and one of the one of the things I want to come from the book is to point out that hey, you know, what's shown in the news isn't necessarily the news, and it doesn't necessarily meet the ideals that we would we would have for journalism. And then if people first realize that and start scrutinizing um, what, what's currently being reported. And want to see better reporting then they 'll get it over time okay so, so that's that 's the bigger thing, and that may take decades if it if it ever happens. Um, the other solution that i that I would propose is that yes, news outlets have to make money, and they should continue to do those things that will draw on audiences and you know keep them financially viable. I mean, the last thing I want is for every news station to provide things that people don't want and then go out of business, and then we have no news at all. But if, if they were to, at the margins, start reporting a little bit more on policy and a little bit less on other you know, fluffy stuff, it doesn't have to be a massive change. It can be a small change. It, maybe it's one story per program where they do one less convenience store holdup um, and one more, hey, there was a town meeting on education. Um, so it doesn't have to be huge, but if it, 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 if if it just went slightly in that direction, I, I think it
0: would be a big a, a big change. So the book is done. What is next for you?
1: Yeah, so this book came out last week. It's currently available through NYU Press and on Amazon. Um, so I have to work on doing the marketing for this book, and then I have to start doing the marketing for the, my next book that comes out in July. Um, so with my co-author. Joseph Parent Um, we have a book coming out on Oxford University Press um, in the middle of July called American Conspiracy Theories and in that book we attempt to answer the question um, why do people believe in conspiracy theories so um,
0: sounds fascinating it does
1: yeah so that book is finished and it's in production now and um, so it's one to the next
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, th- this book is The People's News, Media, Politics, and the Demands of Capitalism. And the author is Dr. Joseph Uzinski. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find The People's News, written by Joseph Uzinski at Amazon and other retailers. Thank you for listening.